Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the season of light, isn't it? The tradition of outdoor lighting actually involved from the tradition of indoor lighting. Putting candles on Christmas trees that would be uh, placed next to a bucket of water, just in case. European Christians used to uh, display burning candles, uh, burning candle in the windows of their homes in order to let outsiders know that their home was a Christian home and they were welcome to come in and worship with them. Inviting someone to worship with you at Christmas, what a concept, right? I know you'll be doing just that. It was during the Christmas season of 1880 that Thomas Edison introduced the first outdoor electric light display when he decorated the outside of his laboratory complex in West Orange, New Jersey. It was situated near a railway where lots of people would, would pass by and, and see it each night. A couple years later, Edward Johnson, an inventor who was working for uh, Edison, came up with the first string of lights. By 1890, they were being mass-produced, and as they became more affordable, their popularity spread, taking off, really taking off, around the turn of the century or just after that. But do you suppose people even think about uh, why the tradition of Christmas lights came to be? Or are they just happy to stick with the old adage that it's uh, because uh, it helps Santa Claus find their house, which it does, okay? Don't get me wrong. Uh, I hope they might be thinking there's more to it than that, though. Isaiah clues us in tonight when he says, Come, let us walk uh, in the light of the Lord. The lights are a reminder that along with uh, Jesus at first Christmas came light and hope. Bibles sprinkled with verses that, that tie the love of God together with the light of God, opposed to stumbling around by ourselves in the darkness of sin. Those are promises you want to get a death grip on it and, and just never let go. Now most of you know how the Bible begins, right? Kind of like our gospel lesson, in the beginning. But do you know how it ends? A sensible guess would, would be like um, the end, like most books do. The Bible isn't like most other books, and uh, it, it doesn't end that way because it's really not the end of the story for us. You can't finish reading it and just walk away. It ends, come Lord Jesus. And then adds a blessing. Not the end. Come, Lord Jesus. Advent means come. It's a season of reflection and anticipation. It speaks not only of the birth of the Christ child, our Savior and Redeemer, but also of his return as King on the last day. Advent is a season of hope. It's a message of hope in a time when so many people uh, may have been touched by hopelessness. Some 700 years or so before Jesus was born into our world, the Word of God in person, Prophet Isaiah brought God's Word to his people, just as he'd gotten it from God. That's something like 2,700 years ago for us, but that doesn't make him irrelevant today. In fact, time has proven just how reliable his words and his vision were. Uh, his message in tonight's Old Testament lesson is as fresh and timely as the day it was first spoken. It was a serious message for people worried about how unstable the world was in their day. And it's, last, it's a lasting message for everyone since, right up through tonight. It's a, to, a, written, or to a, a sorry, downtrodden, mostly hopeless people that Isaiah brings his hope-filled vision from God. This was the time of the divided kingdom for the Hebrew people, okay? Israel in the north, Judah in the south, each with its own king, and yet they were all God's people. It's also a time of civil war. Against Isaiah's warning, southern king Ahaz, an idol worshiper, he'd actually uh, sacrificed his own son to a pagan god. Um, he decided that 
that uh, he would join against Isaiah's uh, warnings with the Assyrians, the uh, big power of the day, world power, uh, against his brothers to the north. Uh, Judah, his kingdom, was spared for the moment, but after savoring their sweet victory in Israel, uh, Syria eventually set its sights on Jerusalem and Judah into the south. It was a dark time. Under then King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, and through the miraculous intervention of God, the Assyrian threat was held off, but Isaiah saw the day when it wouldn't be so lucky against the next superpower to come along, Babylon. Every believer was wondering, where is the salvation God promised? Messiah was every Jew's hope. You know, when will these wars end? Isaiah answered by recalling the words of another prophet, Joel. About a hundred years or so earlier, Joel had called people to prepare for war by telling them to beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. Well, what Isaiah does is lift that phrase out of the writings of Joel and turn it around. He sees the day when they'll beat their swords back into plows and their spears back into pruning hooks. He just doesn't see exactly when. And that's often the way it was with the prophets. When they received a word from God, they would take that word straight to the people. When they received a vision from God, it was often in word pictures, uh, symbols and representations. It'd be almost like uh, standing on a mountaintop, the highest peak of the whole range. And from your vantage point, you could look out and see the next mountaintop, and the next one even beyond that. Uh, each peak would be an event that God would show them. Some of them represented judgment, some of them represented God's grace. But what lay in the valleys in between, or how deep those valleys were, or how long it would take to get from one peak to the next, they didn't always know. But each glimpse into the future was always meant to turn the people's hearts back toward God, usually in repentance and confession, but sometimes in praise. Uh, but it was always for their ultimate good, not evil. Even the Babylonian exile that was coming wouldn't be able to totally destroy God's people. The temple would be destroyed, the visible seed of their, their religion and their faith, uh, but they would survive. Many of them would prosper in a, in a foreign land during that time of captivity because they had hope that God would one day rescue them. And after something like 70 years, God did. Uh, God's judgment is, is designed to be corrective, His grace redemptive. They knew from past experience that the events foretold by the prophet would come true, but they also knew that until during and after that time, they would have to live by faith. Isaiah's words tonight are all about coming home after the impending disaster. But in addition, he saw even beyond that event to the day when there would never be a need for swords or spears ever again. A day when all people, Jew and Gentile, at God's invitation would be free to make their way to him, to gather around him, to turn, the, the one true, to, turn to the one true God for salvation and and be welcomed on his heavenly mountain, symbolized by Zion or Jerusalem. Kind of the same thing. Later on, the Apostle Paul would tell his readers that in Christ, this was already beginning to happen. That by faith in Christ, God made no distinctions. You know, by faith, all people were his children. The imagery of swords and the plowshares has long been held up as a symbol for world peace to a world that seems to be constantly at war. Just as soon as we get ourselves out of one war, Seems like somebody wants to start one somewhere else, doesn't it? You know, Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin travel the country collecting unwanted guns. Uh, they heat them up to 2,000 degrees in a foundry, and then they literally beat them into garden tools. They try to teach people a better way, nonviolent ways to deal with conflict. Martin is a pastor and a certified blacksmith. 
They have a book out called Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. An interesting website called rawtools.org. Rawtools.org. Interesting stuff on it. The verse from Isaiah about beating swords into plowshares is deleted to their site. I think that most of us would, would be happy to turn our 21st century swords and spears, our tanks and fighter jets and guns into plows and pruning hooks, as long as we knew that they would never be needed again. One day, God's ultimate purpose will be to make the dual purpose war, the peace, the war utensils irrelevant. But when? Now, are we living in darkness these days? Or light? Now, right now, tonight, are we living in one of life's valleys? Or on a peak? Now, it's a question that's different for each of us in some ways, but ultimately it depends on, on where you place your trust. Now, all we can really be sure of is that it's all going to end well someday for the children of God, because Advent is about hope. Advent's also a season of light. The reminders are beginning to show up all around us. Lights, thousands of lights for hope. Lights to remind us that Jesus, the light of the world, is coming. To remind us of the promise of salvation and the Christ child. To remind us of the star that led the wise men to Jesus. I know that when your neighbor puts his giant snowman and reindeer on, the, on his roof, he's likely not making that connection. Uh, did you ever ask yourself why unbelievers even bother to put up lights? You know, people who don't care one way or another about Jesus? Now think about that. For some of them, lights are just seasonal decorations. They've never given a thought to where it all began or even why. But even for them, there's this unrecognized commonality with the truth. I think that the lights we see everywhere we go may often be expressions of defiance in the face of hard times. Tangible assertions that when everything seems so fragile, so, so tenuous, um, that even when it seems like things are getting increasingly dark, you know, there's still hope. I think that they're an attempt on the part of believers and unbelievers alike to affirm that there's always goodness and joy to be had for those who will just take the time to stop and look for it. Always. And that's a good thing. We need beauty in our lives. I'm sure there'll be, you'll see plenty of beautiful lighting displays again this year. We all need reminders that we should defy the darkness, don't we? We all need hope, but sadly, that's where the, the similarities and the real hope ends for some people. When it all becomes just a, a decoration or something they do because their parents did it or their parents did it. You know, it reminds them of the, the hope for Christmas like they had when they were a child, back when they never knew the sorrow of the world. Uh, Christmas of warm fires and cold snow and sweet and inviting smells. It reminds them of the hope for a family gathering and a family life like the one they knew before they were introduced to the pain of divorce or the agony of an untimely death or the grief that separation brings. It reminds them of the hope for a magical world, a world where Santa and his elves create and deliver all sorts of wondrous things for good little girls and boys, all in all their heart's desires. It reminds them of a world in which the problems and pressures of daily living can be erased only the carols are playing loud enough. Reminds them of a world in which joy can be increased in direct proportion to the number of lights we string. But for those who still don't have the real hope that, that Christmas represents, all those things are in vain. The lights of Christmas alone can never and will never make Christmas like it was when we were children. The lights of Christmas alone can never and will never hold back the darkness of sin and sorrow. The lights of Christmas alone can never and will never change the world and bring us the salvation we desire. Only the Christ who was born on Christmas Day can do that. 
He is Isaiah's promise fulfilled. Whether it's his birth as our redeemer, or his suffering and death on a cross as our atonement, or his return as king and judge, real hope is always centered in Jesus. Now, for far too many people this year, the lights will only be a reminder of Christmas's past, completely void of the joy that is to come. The joy that's coming when the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest on the mountains, as we, we heard in our, our Old Testament reading. The day the Lord of light returns to judge between the nations and make all things right again. On that day, the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks for the very last time. And the pain of the world will be ended as nation will no longer rise up against nation. When there will be peace between nations and peace within families who will dine together at the banquet feast of the Lord, the day Miss America will finally get her wish. But how much more wonderful is it when you have reason to believe with certainty that when this life is over, you'll enter into a joy that, that is eternal. When you have reason to believe that the light, which only briefly defies the darkness during our Christmas celebrations, will be established forever. We have such reasons. We have that hope, that sure hope. And because of that, we can rejoice at Christmas time, even when the money is tight or the job seems unstable or when our health is failing. Uh, even when, when our kids have moved far away, or our parents have died, or we're threatened with all the, the ills of, of human greed and, and human sinfulness around us. We have reason to hope because Jesus, the one who has come, is coming again. Because his life and his death and his resurrection guaranteed his promise of hope to all who believe in him. You and I can face the world as it is and make a difference in it and be at peace with it. The true light of the world has come and is coming again. May his light shine from your hearts and your homes, not just this Advent season, but in all the seasons of your days as we walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all human understanding by your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.